0: Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of God. Hi again, everyone. It's great to see you all and to worship together for this last afternoon Worship service of the year for us, or of the, of the summer before we switch to the mornings. Each week, we gather here for corporate worship. And by corporate worship, we simply mean worship together as a body, as one united body. We do this every week. And I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, why? Why do we do this? And, and why do we gather? And second of all, when we gather, why do we do what we do when we get here? Well, over the next several weeks, we want to unpack that question. We want to answer that question. And and our aim in doing this, hopefully, is for us as a church to grow in a deepened understanding and a deepened appreciation for the gathering of the church, for gathered corporate worship. And so today, we want to simply ask the question, begin answering the question, Why do we gather? Why do we gather? And here's the first thing I want us to think about as we consider why we're sitting here today. We gather because corporate worship is God's ancient idea. It's God's ancient idea. This is not human tradition. It certainly wasn't my idea. You know, the people of God were once enslaved in Egypt. For centuries. And and the book of Exodus tells us how God rescued his people from captivity in Egypt. But what we find out as we read the book of Exodus is that God didn't just free them from oppression, he did that, but he also freed them so that they could worship him together in his presence, in his dwelling place. In fact, once God's people are out of Egypt and they're, they're in the wilderness wandering, God establishes a, a covenant with them. And he gives them his law. And you know what else he does? He instructs them to build a meeting tent. A tabernacle. And, and here's what he says to them about this meeting place in Exodus 29 verse 43. We should be able to project this up, Brian, if the should be there. Exodus 29, he says to God's people, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. And I will consecrate, that is, I will set apart this tent of meeting and the altar. And Aaron also and his sons, will cons- I will consecrate, set apart, to serve me as priests. And I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. You see, one of God's goals in the Exodus was to gather his people and dwell with them. Now, he, would, he was certainly present wherever they were, but in a very special way, he wants to dwell with them by means of this holy place, this tabernacle. And then later on, there would be a temple in Jerusalem which would take the place of that tabernacle. So he says, I want to dwell with you by means of this tabernacle and by means of these people, these special people that I'm setting apart as priests. And so what happened is a handful of times a year, all the Israelites would get together, they would assemble before the Lord at this tabernacle. They would do it, for instance, at Passover, and they would do it for other festivals throughout the year as well. And then once a year, just once a year, they would, they would gather on the Day of Atonement. And all the people would, would gather to offer a sacrifice to atone for their sin. And that one annual sacrifice was accompanied by other regular sacrifices that the priests would offer daily. So here's the picture. For Israel, corporate worship as a people was an occasional special event. and Now in one sense, as I said, God dwelled with them and he wanted them to worship them every day. God says, honor me and serve me in every aspect of your life, but gathered worship together had a special place in their society. Gathered worship in the place where God dwells, that was restricted to specific special occasions. And, and it really, it was only the priests who had daily access to that presence of God. And that went on for centuries. But Jesus Christ changed all that. Because when Jesus arrives, he says, I am the presence of God with you. The Gospel of John explains the birth of Jesus this way. He says the word became flesh. God took on flesh and he, what, dwelt amongst us you know what the word for dwelt amongst us is there he tabernacled amongst us he became a tabernacle a dwelling place of God with us literally Jesus would say about him you know what Jesus would say about himself later on in his life he says destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up And he's talking about his own body he's saying my body is the temple I am where God meets with and dwells with his people Instead of going to that special tent or that building to worship God and deal with your sin and have your sins paid for, now you come to me, Jesus says. See, Jesus Christ replaced the tabernacle in the wilderness and he replaced the temple in Jerusalem. Now God's people worship God by coming to him, believing in him. And on top of that, Jesus replaced all those sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle and and in the temple. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is all about, in fact. I want to show you what Hebrews says about this. Hebrews chapter 7 says, Jesus has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for the sins of his people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. You see, when Jesus Christ allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, he offered himself up as one single final sacrifice for sin. So all those offerings over all those years, they were really just preparing God's people for what was to come. They were all pointing to a future final offering. Hebrews also says this in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That was the life of a priest. Offering those same sacrifices over and over again, which can never take away sins. That's why they were repeated over and over again, because one was not enough. These sacrifices could never take away sins. but They were called to offer them daily, Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When do you sit down? You sit down when the work is done, right? The, the priests were standing, always offering sacrifices, standing at the altar, Jesus offers one and then he sits down. The job is done. It's finished. And it says, verse 13, he's waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, because of his death, God's people are now once and for all declared clean, set apart. And we can live in the very presence of God. The book of Hebrews is filled with that kind of language. It shows us how Jesus Christ changed the way that God's people could relate to their God. The book of Hebrews tells us that we we have our sins forgiven by believing in Jesus and his sacrifice for us. And, And not only that, there's more. Because through faith in Jesus... Each of us, each person who believes in him, receives the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who dwells in you always. You see, this means that now for all of God's people, we have intimate access to him. It's not just a few priests who have that kind of access. We have that kind of access. And better, all of God's people get to experience God's presence. Now, now here's a question that all of that raises. If the Spirit of God lives in us, and there's no longer a need for sacrifices, what's the point of gathered worship? Why do we get together? And plus, the the, the New Testament tells us that if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then really your whole life is meant to be worship. In 1 Corinthians 10, it, it says whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, Do it for the glory of God. In other words, whether you're eating or drinking or anything else, it's meant to be worship. Romans 12 says, present your bodies, right? Your body, your very existence, everything that you have, present it to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, Christian's whole existence is an act of service to the Lord. It's an act of worship. So, again, why do we gather here? If all of life out there is worship, why do we get in here to worship together? Why do we do this? I think one place that helps us understand is the very words that Elisa read to us a few moments ago. Let's go back there. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25, where it says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. His flesh was beaten and torn and broken to open the way for us to enter in and have access to God. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together or not neglecting to gather, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. If you are a follower of Christ, listen, you have the Spirit living in you. You are His dwelling place. Yes, you have access to God, and you don't need a human priest to mediate for you. But that does not mean that we... Ever stop approaching God together as a gathered people. Verse 25 is key here for us. It says, don't neglect to meet together. Gather, as is the habit of some. This is a famous verse, by the way, but it's often looked at in isolation. It's looked at as just kind of an added exhortation, and, and we shouldn't read it that way. We can't, because what... the the author says there, it connects with everything that goes before it. You see, this whole section is talking to the people of God as a people. Not just as individuals, but as a united people. Look, look, it says, brothers, since we have a great high priest over the house. You see, he's not just a, a great high priest over Brian or over James or over Kaylee. He's a great high priest over the whole house. God. So let us, plural, draw near together. It's corporate, it's group language here. It's calling us together to come into the presence. Not just a few times a year, like in the Old Testament, but to come again and again and again. To do it boldly, to do it with a clean conscience, he says. Because we've been cleansed, to do it full of faith because of Christ's sacrifice. He says, let's together hold fast to our confession. Don't stop believing what you have confessed, that all of your hope and acceptance with God is in Jesus. But in order for us to do all that, in order for us to hold tight to this confession, to hold tight to our hope in Jesus, in order for us to stand in the faith we have to come together. And so don't neglect that. Don't minimize that. Don't see it as, as periphery or tangential to your life as a Christian. You see, it's important. In fact, the primary focus of our time together is this. It's to encourage one another. And verse 25 says that. And verse 24 says it's to stir up one another to love and good works. That's the primary reason we get together and we gather as god's people it's not about the place anymore in the new testament the early days of the church where were christians gathering they weren't gathering in the temple anymore they would go together and worship in the synagogue many of them would but the church would really get together in homes when they were being persecuted and chased they would meet in caves catacombs the place didn't matter because what mattered is it was the gathering of Spirit-filled people in the presence of God. You see, the Spirit was present in each of them individually, but when they get together to gather and worship God together, the Spirit of God is now present there in a, in a special way, in a different way. Because all these temples of God where God lives are getting together to form this greater, bigger, more beautiful temple. Temple not made with stones, but made of people. Peter calls them living stones. (laughs) Look, don't, don't get me wrong, New Hope. Worship isn't something we only do on Sunday. It can't be. Worship should suffuse our entire lives. But the gathering of the church on the Lord's day, it's vital. It's one way, it's the way for us to approach God together in order to encourage one another and to stir each other up. All the more, Hebrews says, as the day of Christ's return draws near. The day when all of God's people throughout the ages in the world will experience his presence for eternity. You see, the gathering is God's ancient idea for our good. In the Old Testament, it looked one way, and it had specific purposes. That changed with Jesus, but the gathering is still God's good idea for us to encourage us, to stir us up, to love him, and to live for him. We're prone to minimize that, maybe even to think that we don't need that. I mean, it's good, it's tradition, I'll do it, but do I really need the gathering? Especially in our culture, we we think so individualistically, and, that, and that, that's absorbed into our view of what it means to follow Jesus. We think individualistically. He's Jesus, I'm me, I will follow him. The relationship is between him and me alone. It's me and God. And so we seem to value personal experience over shared experience. Or maybe when we enjoy shared experience, we think about it within a small context, right? One-on-one, someone ministers to you, and you experience community that way. And you say, wow, Jesus used this person to minister to me. That's community. Yes, it is. Or God used my small group, this small group of men or women, to, to, to minister to me. God used them. We value that. Maybe we prefer that, and those are important ways that God ministers to us. I experienced both of those kinds of ministry powerfully over the course of this weekend, both one-on-one and in a small group, and it left me transformed in some ways. But none of that takes away from the importance of the big gathering. All of God's people in a local community, in a local body, coming together. It's interesting when you read about God's, when you read God's instructions for the local church, what we should do when we gather together throughout the New Testament, the emphasis always seems to be on building up the whole body. It's about how when you arrive in this gathering, how can you help build up others in this body and, and you be built up too so that the whole body as a whole is becoming healthier, stronger, more like Jesus And how does that building up happen? How do we get encouraged and stirred up in the gathering? Certainly, it's through some of the one-on-one interactions that we have, isn't it? It's through the the prayer that someone prays over you or the time that you share in between uh, after the service and before the service. Sharing and ministering to one another. Certainly, it happens in those cases, but that's not it, is it? Because some of those times that we spend one on one with each other before service and after service, or in that greeting time that some of us find so awkward in the middle of the service, um, it's rushed, right? It's rushed. Well, There's not much time. We've got to kind of move on. In the gathering of the church, when we all get together in this way, how are we going to stir one another up? How are we going to encourage one another? It's through the corporate acts that we engage in together. The reading and teaching of God's word, the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs as a, a group up here facilitates that and leads us in it. But we're all doing We're not watching them perform. We're all singing together to God and to one another. And as someone like Elisa stands up here and reads the word of God, and we don't just go to sleep. We receive that as if it's God speaking to us because it is. We pray together as a body, as someone leads us like Nancy did today. As we come and take the Lord's Supper together, communion, as we'll do a little bit later today. In all of that, through all of it, when we are engaged, really engaged, and the Spirit moves like He promises to move, we are stirred up to love Jesus and to want Jesus and to live in His name. We're moved into deeper encouragement and strength. How does that happen? How does just getting together and doing these things together leave us more encouraged and stirred up to love Jesus? That's really part of what we're going to look at over the next several weeks as we consider each of the elements of what we do here. We're going to look at the different parts of what we do here. Scripture, the reading and preaching of the Scripture, prayer, singing, communion, Today, I just got two big-picture ways that God uses corporate worship. Two big-picture ways that God uses the gathering for our good and our growth. Here's one way. Corporate worship reorients us. It reorients us. You know what that means, to reorient. It means to to change focus or to change direction, to change your point of reference. Corporate worship redirects us. It reorients us to our God and to what's true about our God. You see, the gathering, when we get together and the word of God is read or taught and we sing, we take the Lord's Supper and we pray together, in all of that, together, united, we're reminded of some things. Redirected to some truths. For instance, we're reminded that we get to approach God empty-handed because of Jesus, we're not, we're not bringing sacrifices with us. We're also not bringing a long list of things that we did for him this week in the hopes that he will accept us. We come empty-handed. In fact, you know what we come dragging him with us? Some of us come in dragging regrets and brokenness and sin and shame, and we drag it in before him, and we say, Lord, I am appro- you are approachable to me. I can come into your presence because I have been cleansed. I have been forgiven and you want me here because of what Jesus has done for me. The gathering reminds us of who we really are. Yes, we're sinners in need of grace, there's no doubt, but if through faith in Jesus Christ, we can walk in here knowing and being reminded, I am a child of God, adopted into his family, beloved by him. Not only does he love me, he likes me, he delights in me, he, and it's not just me, it's us struggle with our identity all week long, some of us do, trying to find our identity and our worth and all sorts of things, our accomplishments, our pursuits, what we wear, what we look like. We come in here and we're reoriented to the truth through faith in Jesus. You are my child. You are my family, God says to us, all beloved by him. The gathering reminds us of what God says about us, Man, we sing these songs and we read these words and we pray and we come to this table. Look, we hear so many voices telling us what they think of us. Our own voice condemns us and we tell us ourselves what we think of us, and it's not always pretty. The gathering reminds us of what God says about us righteous in Christ, faithful and beloved, delighted in. The gathering reminds us that there is a good and gracious father who's at work even in our sufferings. The gathering, it reminds us that, 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 a, that there's a kingdom that's bigger and better than what we see around us. There's a kingdom that's bigger and better than our own little personal kingdoms that we're working so hard to build for ourselves. The gathering reorients us to our true king, And we submit to him by hearing his word. We receive what he has to say to us. We wrestle with it and we respond in obedience and faith. With prayer and with praise. The gathering reminds us that we are not alone in exile. But that God is with us in the wilderness. Now and into eternity when there is no longer a wilderness. And we're brought home. The gathering reminds us of what really matters Don't we need that after weeks and days of laying up treasures for ourselves, building up our portfolios, building up our bank accounts, building up our academic record, building up our accomplishments, just stacking up stuff that we think is so important. We need to come together and as a body, not compare ourselves to one another, not compare our accomplishments, but instead be reoriented to our God, our Father, our King, who says, the inheritance I have for you is what really matters. The kingdom work that I've called to you, you too, is what really matters. All that really matters is promised you in Christ. And there's so much more that we're reoriented to. The gathering redirects us toward reality. It's true that when we get together in worship, we, we express our emotions to God. There's no doubt. We, express our conf- we confess our affection and our devotion to God, and we need to do that. But that's not all we do. We're also listening to and declaring objective truth, facts. Like Jesus is the son of glory. Like we're confessing this this mystery that he took on flesh to die for us. We're confessing the truth that we will never know fully the cost of what Christ bought for us at the cross. These are some of the truths that we sang today. So, So we're speaking truth, listening to truth, declaring it, And we're also expressing our devotion and our love or affection for God. And this is only right. It's the way it should work because this way truth about God is always meant to lead to praise of God. The way some have expressed it is this way. Theology is always meant to lead to doxology, right? Theology is knowing things about God. It's always meant to lead to doxology, which is praise to God. And we do both when we gather here and we're redirected towards that here. One of the ways, and it's not the only way, but one of the ways that the gathering works is like this. We receive truth, we listen to it, try to make sense of it, comes into our head, and and, and it flows down into our heart so that it affects the way we feel, and then it flows out into our hands in the way that we live and act. So the way this is often thought of is head, heart, hand. So the truth comes into our head, we receive it, we try to understand it, we wrestle with it, we pray that God would take that truth and, 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 and use it to mold our hearts and to change our hearts so that our hearts will then overflow into acts, head, heart, hands. That's one of the things that happens when we gather as a church. You walk out of here at the beginning. God's wisdom, he made this the first day of the week, which is awesome, because it means that we come in here reoriented so that we can then walk out and use our hands and our bodies to serve. Him and others. Now here's a, a, maybe an objection that you're thinking of. I can read the word of God and get better teaching at home or online. And I would not argue with that. You can get better teaching at home online. Probably get worse teaching too. but Or you can say, you know, I'm, 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 I can listen to my favorite worship music at home and, and it actually might sound better than the sound of people around me singing in church. And I can pick just the songs that I like to hear, the ones that really speak to me, the ones that really remind me of the presence of God. But here's the truth, guys. It's not just the content that's reorienting us when we come into the gathering. It's the context in which we receive it in the gathering. It's the experiential reminder that we are a people, a royal priesthood, Peter says, a holy nation set apart to declare the excellencies of God. I'm not reminded of that listening to, necessarily reminded of that when I'm reading the word of God on my own or listening to it on my own, singing my favorite praise song as I drive down the road. Maybe God reminds me of that, but he's created the gathering purposely to reorient me to that fact. Not only is God present with you, Rob, you are part of a nation, and God is present with his nation. You are part of a royal priesthood. You are part of a family, and God is present with that family. You are not alone. I'm not meant, I wasn't made, just made to, to stream information in my car, or in my bedroom, or on a treadmill. Just download, right, that disembodied information through earbuds while I'm on a run. I am made and you are made to receive and respond to truth in community. We hear it together, we sing it, and speak it together, and in the hearing and the speaking we're encouraged. You know one of the ways we're encouraged, we're singing these words, and we hear someone next to us singing it, and we look at them and we say, "You believe this too?" I mean, I'm not alone because in the workplace, I feel like I'm the only one to believe this. And sometimes I wonder if I even believe it. But you believe this too? Dad, you really believe this? The gathering reminds us that we are part of something much bigger than us. It's ancient, lasting community of worshipers that existed ever since God started calling people to himself. So parents, I mean fathers, it's Father's Day, right? Dads, when you sing to the Lord with more enthusiasm than you show watching a game, you are helping to reorient your child to what really matters. And that's not lost on them. Parents, when, when you set aside your phone and all the, 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 the many gigabytes of info that it's waiting that's waiting for you in that device, when you set it aside to reorient yourself towards God in the community, you are showing your child what really matters to you and where your life is centered. You're humbling yourself under one who is bigger than you and who loves you deeply. I can't count personally the ways that God has used the gathered worship of the church to reorient me. In times of deep depression, well, I'll give you an example. In times of deep depression, I have been ministered to powerfully in solitude, just by myself, me and God. I've been ministered to and helped powerfully in the midst of depression, when in one-on-one ministry, when someone has prayed over me or shared words with me, listened to me. I've been ministered to in the midst of darkness by a small group of people. God's used all those contexts. Even this weekend he did. But you know sometimes it's it's been the gathering. This gathering, you brothers and sisters, sometimes it has been corporate worship that I needed, even when I least wanted it, and I just wanted to stay by myself. And God dragged me into corporate worship. And I had to come because someone had to preach, right? So I had to come. Maybe that's why God has me preach, because he knows it'll keep me coming back to the gathering, because that's what I have needed. To hear God's people praise him around me and with me and speak God's words into my ears, it brought life. It stirred me up to love and to believe in my Savior. The Israelites, they entered the temple and the tabernacle, and every time they went into that place, you know, they they went in remembering, we are sinners, and we need a sacrifice to atone for us. But when we gather, you know we gather declaring? Atonement has already been made for us. We're freed from guilt. We're freed from shame, whether we realize it or not. We have been received by a Father who longs, in fact, is excited to speak to us and to have us near and to see us with our brothers and sisters enjoying fellowship. Desires to see that. So that means we don't come in as consumers, right? I don't, don't come in as a consumer. Don't come in as a spectator. And certainly don't come in as a critic. If you do, then you've missed the whole point of this gathering. Some of you, maybe, maybe we feel pressured when we come in this place to come in wearing a mask. Pretending like everything's okay. Oh, man, Lord, free us from that. Free us from this this foolish, insidious, powerful desire to hide ourselves from one another in the gathering and to fake. Because we're here to engage and we're here to, to welcome the redirection that God has for us. We're here to say, Father, we are your children. What do you have for us? What do you have for us to see? What do you have for us to hear? Corporate worship reorients us. Lastly, corporate worship forms us. It forms us, it shapes us. You know, scientists are learning more and more about how habits, repeated activities that are habituated, how they change us, they change our brain, They change what we desire. The, the habits that we form, they change what we look to for comfort and what we look to when we're in trouble. Our ha- you see, we form habits, but then our habits form us. And we tend to think of that, at least I do, typically in terms of like personal habits, right? So think about some of the personal habits you have, your morning routine. Or think about some of the impulsive habits that you have. For instance, when you grab your phone, what's the, which app is it that your thumb tends to just like instinctively go to. Like, you don't have to think about it. You pick up your phone, your thumb goes there. Boom, right? What is that? that, that that's a habituated, it's become instinctive action. But, but it shapes you, doesn't it? It shapes your desires. It shapes what brings you comfort because somehow over time now, you get some kind of comfort, some kind of peaceful distraction when you click on that app. And you go to it. And you start reading that content. You start looking at that content. Or you communicate with that person. Whatever it is, it's like it's formed you in such a way that now you look to it for comfort. You look to it for peace. Healthy habits shape us just as much as unhealthy habits do. About the practice, it's not, there's no, no coincidence that over the, the course of Christian history, it's been very common for followers of Christ to pray in the mornings and to read God's word in the mornings. Why is that? It's a shaping habit, isn't it? It shapes us. It affects what we desire and what we turn to immediately as we start the day. And some of us we think that habits, it doesn't sound spiritual, it sounds too kind of mechanical. I think it's part of the way that God has wired us. And so even in community, together as a gathered people, the the, the rituals, the rhythms that we engage in together, these shared practices, they shape us. They shape what we love. They shape how we therefore live. You see, so before I said when we come into the gathering, what happens is we receive truth into our head. Hopefully it goes down to our hearts and it goes out through our hands in the way that we worship. So it's head, heart, hands. But you know that's not the only way it works. That may not even be really the most powerful way it works. It also goes hands, heart, head. So the very things that we're doing, the practices, the the, the things that we're engaging in, breaking this bread and eating it and taking this cup, closing our eyes or lifting our hands in worship, The very act of opening up our mouths, not just muttering the words, but opening up our mouths and singing and using these lungs that God's given us to belt out praise to God. These habits, when they become habits, shape us. Hands, heart, head. You see, in both models, whether it's head, heart, hands, or hands, heart, head, the goal is really for the heart to be changed, right? The heart to be affected. But the way into the heart is not just through the brain. Some of our traditions, we, we, we think that way. I tend to feel that way. But it's through the hands, too. It's through the things that we do. What we do, we practice, what we habituate. And you know what happens? The Spirit takes those things that we're doing and shapes our heart with them. The explanation for that change that happens in our hearts is not, and in our brains is not simply biological. The Spirit is at work. Using the very way that God has put us together. Jamie Smith is a, um, he's becoming more and more of a well known uh, philosopher, a Christian philosopher. He says, Your heart is the fulcrum of your love. And the heart is subject to training and to formation. You see, you can train the heart, you can form that. The ways our hearts get trained, he says, is through immersion in practices and routines and rhythms that over time inscribe the right disposition within us. And these practices, they orient us so that we are becoming the kind of people trained to the goal of loving well and living for God. Now, is that the only way that God shapes a heart? No. And certain traditions emphasize different ways, right? Some of us, we come from tradition, I do, from a Reformed tradition that emphasizes the head, it starts with coming in the head and it shapes the heart and goes down to the hands. Some traditions uh, focus more on the, the, the hands. It comes in through what we're doing and it shapes us that way. And some traditions focus more on the heart being affected directly, whether it's through wonders or it's through prayer language or any kind of, it's something that it's kind of over, it, it, it kind of circumvents the, the hands and the heart and just go head, hand and the head and goes straight for the heart. I guess what I'm saying is that we don't despise any of those, do we? We don't want to despise any of those. There are benefits to godly, spiritual habits. Like I said, some of us don't like that word habit. It doesn't sound spiritual. And certainly we don't want things, we don't want anything to become rote, rote, formal, heartless religion. We do not need that. (laughs) May God keep it far away from us. But when we develop rituals and customs and habits, we're actually walking in the way of Christ. In Luke 4.16 it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. I find this comforting. Jesus himself, the son of God, was shaped in his personality, in his experiences, in his affections, through the custom, the, the habit, the ritual, Not empty ritual. The sincere, engaged, intentional act of saying, my custom is to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I'm going there. In Daniel 6, we read months ago in Daniel 6 about how Daniel, when he was under pressure and under the the threat of death, he goes into his room, he opens the window that he always used to open, and he faces Jerusalem, which he always used to do, and he got on his knees and he prayed three times a day as was his custom, or as he had done previously, the author says. Why did he do that? He could have prayed anywhere, but he, he engages in, in this, this practice, and no doubt that practice shaped him into the man he was. Now, ultimately, his hope is not that him, by doing those things, he's going to please God and God will bless him. No, but by doing those things, he's seeking to meet with God. And by doing those things, he's seeking to be shaped into a person who in a disciplined, intentional way wants to be with God. Over centuries, God's people traveled to the temple, and that shaped them as a community. That annual rhythm, right? Go back to the temple. It's time again for Passover, it's the Day of Atonement. Let's go back for the Feast of Booths, let's go back for the Feast of First Fruits. It shaped them. And one of the things I think it shaped them to see is that God is at the center of this community. We are his. I am his. We're dependent on him. He gives, we receive. Our sins need to be forgiven, so let's go. Atonement is possible. Let's go. Do you think God knew something about brain science and how habituated activities shape us? I think he did. I think he's also pleased to use his spirit to work through the very things that he's called us to do repeatedly, his spirit works through them to transform us. So on the Lord's Day, when you gather with the church, you are embracing your true identity as a worshiping creature made in the image of God, who's been redeemed and filled with his spirit to serve and enjoy him. And as you do that again and again and again, you're training your heart to believe that and to live like that. So even, you know, it's summer and we're traveling and we're forming memories together. You're forming memories together with your friends and families as you travel. And that's so important. That's so beautiful. And God wants you to enjoy that. But, but what if while you're forming all those memories with your family you, you, and you're far from home, you gather with the church, God's people. You don't even know them, but you gather with God's people someplace and you worship on the Lord's day where you are. And it's what you do because you're saying, we're a family that belongs to God. And we're not doing this because we have to, we're doing this because we get to. We belong to his called out people, these people that we don't even know we're going to gather to them because we're one with them. And this is God's ancient idea for us, for our good. Just as the gathering, this weekly rhythm shapes us, informs us. Gathering only when it's convenient shapes us as well in a negative direction. It shapes us in a bad way is what I mean. So you have to think, how does our habit of gathering, our rhythm, our practice of gathering, how is it shaping us? Is it shaping us into worshipers or is it shaping us into consumers who come and gather when it's convenient or when it fits or when it's not conflicting with other things? What is your pattern? What is our pattern of gathering with the church shaping us to believe about ourselves and about the world? How is it shaping our families as well? Hope we gather, not we gather because we get to. My goal is not to give you law and law and law, it's to welcome us into the privilege that we have as God's people, to worship Him together. And we don't promise the best worship experience here. Maybe there are way things we need to change, maybe in the future about the way we worship, whatever. But I'll tell you this: the goal is for us, and in this series, as we dive into what Corporate worship is about, the goal is for us to value and to love and to prioritize the gathering. Because it's God's ancient good idea for us. And we need to be redirected and we need to be formed. Week by week. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have always been about engaging your people, relating to your people, calling your people to us. And so we, we thank you for the wisdom with which you've done that over the years and over the centuries. But we thank you that when we come in here, we don't need to come bringing in our sacrifices, burdened with all of that. Instead, we can come having our hearts been sprinkled, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and know that you are our Father who receives us as your family, As your people, help us to live in the light of that, to enjoy it. In Jesus' name, amen.